Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. Well, this is it. Barring any unforeseen developments, knock on wood, this is the last COVID-19 roundtable episode. We're not out of the woods, but case numbers and deaths are rapidly declining. Hospital admissions have waned, and the latest CDC guidance shows Arizona moving toward a low level of community risk. So, for what we hope will be our final COVID-19 roundtable discussion, we brought our panelists back to reflect on the last two years, the successes, the challenges, and the lessons learned. We hope you enjoy. We are thrilled to be joined once again, and likely for our last time, by Dr. Kara Guerin of Valleywise Health. Dr. Guerin, how are you today? Doing well, thank you. And Dr. Joshua LeBaire of ASU's Biodesign Institute. Josh, how are you, sir? Feeling great, doing good. Good to see you. And to my right, live and in person, actually, is Mr. Will Humble of the Arizona Public Health Association. Howdy, everybody. Nice to be here. We are two plus years into the pandemic now. We are seeing the numbers rapidly slow, which is a good thing. What do you all think? Is this our last COVID-19 roundtable? I think so. What gives you that sense? We're never going to get herd immunity, but there's so much community immunity from people that have been vaccinated and some of whom got infected with the virus anyway with a breakthrough. And all the troublemakers who wouldn't get vaccinated caught Omicron for the most part. It's going to continue to bubble along and there will always be cases, but I can't see Vitalist keeping this ship going because I think it's sailed. They expect COVID to be endemic, not a pandemic. And so, man, I hope it's not this high for an endemic, but hopefully we're headed that direction. Well, I just think everything from now on, well, even right now, every infection pretty much is a breakthrough case in a vaccinated person or a reinfection from someone who's been previously infected. And so there's T cells and antibodies. So that's why I think this is the last broadcast because there's just so much T cell immunity out there that the breakthrough cases and the reinfections are just not going to translate to the kinds of hospitalizations that you've been seeing for the last two years. Dr. LeBaire, what's your sense? You're looking at these numbers and you're seeing the virus and how it evolves over time. In general, what we saw with the last Omicron wave was that it did not have the same kind of hospitalization impact and the kind of death impact that we've seen with previous rounds, even though the case numbers were extraordinary. I mean, it went up so fast, but then it came down so fast. And I think our overall goal from the beginning was to reduce hospitalizations, reduce severe infections and reduce death. And I think with the general immunity, that was true, at least with Omicron. The the big question mark out there that we'll always have to keep an eye on is whether or not some new variant creeps up that isn't quite as nice to us as Omicron was. And that escapes all the immunity people have built up. And and it escapes immunity. And we always have to remember that Omicron did not come from Delta. Omicron came from somewhere else completely. And so there's always the chance that a new variant can come from somewhere else. But overall, the impact was much lower this time, and not just in the United States, but all throughout the planet. For Omicron, it wasn't as severe. And so I think that kind of indicates that this is shifting from pandemic to endemic, and hopefully that will continue. This is like the end of a horror movie when you think the movie's over, but then the video camera goes to the lake or the pond and you see a little ripple and you can oh, see it. No, no. They're rolling credits. They're rolling oh. credits? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
we yeah, actually they're, they're not going to raise enough money for a sequel. <laughs> All right. <laughs> no. My colleagues and I were discussing the other day if Omicron had been as deadly as Delta, we would have been in. It would have been an apocalypse. Oh yes. yeah, there's that healthcare word collapse. Right. For me, the scariest two weeks of this whole thing were from Thanksgiving of 2021 to about December 15th, 17th, where we knew Omicron was way more contagious than Delta, mm -hmm. but we didn't know what the clinical presentation was going to be. And the study that made me chill was done by a health plan in South Africa where they followed their members and looked at what happened to them after their infections. And they did it age adjusted so that you could see what was happening in the various ages. And that was the day that I chilled out. And it was about December 18th of 2021. Hmm. I remember back in one of our first episodes for this, or just early on in the pandemic, we talked about the natural experiments that would occur through the pandemic, that this thing was going to rifle through entire countries, the entire world, and different locales, different nations were going to take different approaches to it. What have we learned about how to tackle pandemics? Have we figured out what works well? And what doesn't has a certain country or region done a really great job that we should be learning from moving forward. When I look to South Korea as sort of a mentor country where before the vaccine, they were able to do really good contact tracing. People were wearing masks. They had good cooperation. They kept their case counts way down. Then when the vaccine rolled out, they did a good job getting that out. Good compliance, high vaccination rates. So if I'm going to give a gold star in this pandemic, I'm going to give it to South Korea. I would say probably that's right. I don't know what you think about There's been a lot of interesting models to consider out there. So Australia is another country that had extraordinarily low death rates and that kept their population safe from the virus. But then their people, that country was under lockdown for a very, yeah. very long time. And, you know, you couldn't get in or out of there. They're just coming out now. And of course, now it's running rampant in that country. The difference between those two to me is that South Korea used contact tracing as a really effective tool, whereas the lockdowns are a blunt instrument. And then what would you say about Israel? I mean, Israel had very high vaccination rates, probably the best on the planet, but then they had plenty of cases. So. Right. But it didn't translate into the kind of per capita That's death true. rates were a That's lot true. lower than here. That's and true. they had a compliant population. That was the other thing. You know, mm -hmm. the people did what they were asked to do here. They did. Right. Well, 50 something percent did. And 30, 40 right. percent said, I'll do whatever I want. Let's play COVID MVP. Over two years, we've learned a lot. Arizona has done some things that are really good and some things that are not so great. We've had certain individuals, certain professions, certain people really step up. Some have stepped back. Who in your mind earns COVID MVP for the last two years? I'm going to give an award to all of the journals that put out good preprints. That's a good one. Before I mean, it was peer reviewed. Had they waited and did gone through the whole process, all those articles would have come out later than they should have, and we wouldn't have been able to use them. So I'd say a shining star is really the journals who did a good job putting preprints together and 
And for those states that had governors that cared about evidence, they were able to use that. And that's why we see this huge disparate death rate on the various states. That's the nature of our republic is that governors have, federal government has a role to play and they financed a lot of the interventions, but the granular detail decisions were made by governors. And some governors made good decisions based on evidence that their staff found in preprints and other governors ignored evidence altogether and was just completely uninterested in that and were making their decisions in the absence of any kind of evidence and were in one of those states. I came up with two. And I'm going to kind of go Time Magazine on this. I think to some degree, the individuals, I think everyone suffered during this. It was a huge change in everybody's life and those individuals who were careful, which I think probably at some point was everybody, and respected boundaries and tried to stay safe and wore masks. I just think that some people abandoned that too early. But I think at the beginning, individuals, people were doing the right thing for the world, for the community, for their neighbors, even though it was hard. Some people abandoned that too early. And not because I am a healthcare worker, but I think healthcare workers to some degree, because it was hard. It was hard to go to work and not know what you were really getting yourself into. I remember taking care of very, very sick patients and just being at some point, like you kind of get used to it, but it's at the very beginning being kind of like petrified, like, what am I doing? What am I catching? What am I going to take home? And just the constant bombardment. There's been plenty of problems with the healthcare system, but I think that it's been a rough time and people stuck it out. I would give the award to the mRNA vaccine manufacturers, but I'm not going to give it to them because they did not let that data out as open source, even though the federal government paid for their research and development, made them whole, put zero risk in the system financially. And yet when the time came to do the right thing and release the information that was needed in the developing world to make that vaccine, they said, yet. And that's why so I don't give more. it to them. Yeah. yeah. I also, as the parent of a child under four, the roller coaster of the Pfizer under four vaccine has been heartbreaking. <laughs> so that makes me automatically pretty <laughs> angry and frustrated. But the fact that they could have done so much and made such a global impact and they chose not to. They chose not to, even though we paid for their stuff. We paid right. for it. That's why I don't give them a gold star. Right. Yeah. Because they're going to be making a profit from this for a long time now. Yeah. yeah. Next question. Between now and the next pandemic, what does public health need to improve on? I don't know if the improve on is the right way to think about it, but we got to write all this stuff up. There's so many natural experiments that happened in all these different states with the different interventions that they did. They had different results. And so we need some researchers and the universities to really step up and look at all these natural experiments and get it into the literature so that we can document what worked and what didn't, what were the most effective interventions. And then we can start doing those systematic reviews after that, once we get all that put together. So I think it's a partnership between academic and executive public health that needs to happen and get all this stuff written up and into the literature so that remember at the beginning of this with some of these podcasts we're like well i found a study but it was from 1920 yep. Yep. <laughs> and like yep. we were using stuff from like greenlee county for that was published in 1920 at the beginning of wow. this thing right. so and now we've got 
an enormous opportunity to get into the details of what worked and what didn't work, what was the highest return on investment strategies. And then we can dive into the details of the return on investment for Australia's interventions versus South Korea's. Look at the different states in the U.S. and these governors made these decisions and these were the results. These governors made other decisions. Look at their results. What were the key elements? To me, it's like, let's write this stuff up. That's what I'm going to say for that question. We also need to build and deploy a surveillance architecture throughout the state. So, you know, we, we need to do better surveillance of our population as a routine. And now that we've been through this, we, we now know that obviously we can't just take samples from one sector of the population, but we have to make, take it more broadly throughout the state. And so we need an infrastructure throughout the state that's going to somehow get us samples on a routine basis. It won't have to be at the intensity that this was, but it, we need to do something so that we're constantly monitoring our population. Probably wastewater is going to play a role there. I mean, you know, we can, we can use that. Now that we know how to sequence from wastewater, it means we can not only look at just doing testing, but we can actually look at what's in there, what viruses are being shed so that if we start to see rises in things, we can keep an eye on it. And that is a big part of recent news, right? With the White House, I think, put out some new guidance or something talking about the importance of wastewater surveillance and how more right. dollars will go to invest right. in wastewater well, surveillance. So I always had issues with wastewater as a way of seeing how many cases are out there because we really didn't know if there was a correlation between wastewater and cases and we could see the cases the cases were right in front of us and we should be just looking at those but when cases are really low that's when wastewater can play a key role right. because we don't really see cases out there as much or we won't be soon and then wastewater can tell us when it's rising in an area that we didn't expect it to be rising in and because we can look at what variants are in the wastewater, if there's something new that's emerging, we can monitor that and say, hey, there's something here that we didn't see before. And that will alert us to stuff. So I think there's some real applications here for that approach. Dr. Guerin, what is public health or healthcare, community health, however you want to think about this? What do we need to focus on between now and the next pandemic? For me, there's two aspects of that, the public health aspect and the healthcare system aspect. The healthcare system has a lot to work on. I don't even almost know where to start, I guess. Being prepared, probably the biggest thing is having the resources you need and the, an ability to get the resources where they're needed, when they're needed. I think that was probably at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the biggest problems. Aside from the fact that we didn't know anything, there's only so much you can do to prepare for something that's completely unknown. But the ability to get gloves somewhere where they're needed in a timely fashion. Healthcare specific and just as general consumers, right? Like everybody was scrambling mm -hmm. for decent face masks, any type mm -hmm. of face mask. People were scrambling to get gloves. People were scrambling to find hand sanitizer, scrambling mm -hmm. to find toilet paper to show that even though we are the most well-resourced country in the world, that there are still some serious blind spots to what we're able to access. We are N95 masks at the beginning of this. We were told to reuse them. And some hospitals put them in like big ovens of some sort to sterilize them. Some hospitals UV raid them. We all kind of knew it was like, well, I hope it still works <laughs> because that's all we have. Don't throw them away because who knows if you're going to be able to get more in a first world country where we're supposed to be prepared. And I think the other part of this is also hospital capacity and how can the healthcare system and hospital capacity flex in a more flexible manner? How, how can it adjust to what it needs? 
And I don't think that we'd have a sense of that at all in the healthcare system. What is the most important thing that we've learned during this pandemic? Well, a lot of different lessons there. Certainly one of them was if you mix science with politics, you get politics. I like that. That's a really good one. Well said. I think a lot of us just thought that people would follow general scientific reasoning, but nah, not so much. I guess another one is that can come to the end of this. Like there is, I can tell you two years ago, I never thought this would end. But there is probably maybe not an end, but at a point where we get endemic. And I mean, I guess to a degree, resilience, right? We lost 6 million people in the world to this and we persist. Yeah, that was one of my kind of follow-up questions is what, what's one thing that we hope people will never forget about this period? I mean, there's so many families out there that lost loved ones, friends, families, and multiple families that lost a lot of people. So I hope that we never forget that health is a community activity and that we have to, even if it's difficult for an individual, we have to take care of the most vulnerable people in our populations. Josh, Will, most important thing that people should remember about this period of time? I hope that people realize that the scientific method does work. Despite all of the noise and the politics and all of this, the vaccines did come through and they had enormous impact. This thing could have been a heck of a lot worse than it was, but for that kind of effort. And I'm hopeful that people realize that that's a good place to put faith in. And it was fast too, faster than anyone could have imagined. Right. But because of years of prior research that stacked up and everybody came to the fore and communicated. And as Will pointed out earlier, because of these archives and people being able to look at each other's data very quickly, that made things go really fast. And from previous research dollars. Yep, absolutely. I'm going to go a little off tangent and say, what have we learned? I think we've learned the importance of having good enforced biosecurity protocols everywhere. Because, I mean, here's what's happening is that our ability to manipulate nature and viruses is progressing a lot faster than our ability to manage those changes. And I'm not suggesting that this virus came out of a lab. It appears to come out of that wet market in yeah. Wuhan, but it shows you us what sloppy biosecurity could eventually do to this world. And it could be next time a much worse scenario. Governments exploring the use of bioweapons and the risk that that poses to our species. Seeing this as an issue of national security, not just global security, not global national security. security. It's like <laughs> there's no borders for the virus, you know. We need to have a healthy respect for nature itself. This wasn't man-made. No. Man mankind is not smart enough to, to have done what this virus I think we disagree ah. on. I think mankind is that smart. I don't think we could have come up with Omicron. I mean, the virus evolution did that. Oh, no, um, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's labs all around the world that are capable of making dangerous stuff. Sure. I just don't think we're smart enough to know how to make it as dangerous as nature did. When you reflect on the last two years, what went right? 
What did we do well? What surprised you about our ability to take this thing on? And you said, you know what? That was, that was a good call. We did all right there. No vaccines. Mm-hmm. The clinical trials went as fast as they possibly could. The financial risk was removed from the system so that the blank spots in vaccine development were the, all the administrative barriers and the administrative bottlenecks were removed. And that was the previous federal administration that did that. And then the clinical trials were accelerated, but we didn't cut corners. I think the emergency use authorization system worked well. I'd have to put the vaccines on the A list. Community esprit de corps. I think willingness of people to come together to solve big problems. I thought, I think we saw that all over our community and also in the country. I certainly personally witnessed it. You know, I I can remember distinctively when, when we were trying to get a COVID test up and running and I sent out an email to the Biodesign Institute on a Friday afternoon saying, I need a few volunteers to help us get this going. And I had 200 responses in like three hours. 200 people volunteered in three hours. And over the weekend, several hundred more. I mean, that's how fast people stepped up to volunteer. And I think we, we saw that in the healthcare workers. We saw that in the community. People everywhere came together to do stuff. So I thought that was impressive. Uh, physicians in Italy were sharing what they were learning and finding and trying to help people in the United States. Uh, healthcare workers, physicians in New York were trying to help people as the virus went west. All right. That was a brief interlude talking about positive things. <laughs> the natural next question is, where did we go wrong? Well, uh, the number one thing in this state was not using evidence to inform public policy. That's I would it. argue that's true the entire, like if you had used evidence to inform public policy on every level, we would have been in a very different place. Yeah, I agree. But it was particularly bad here. Yeah. So, so I'm going to add, though, and say that I think the scientists and physicians need to learn how to do messaging better. I think the CDC was a nightmare of messaging problems, and it's not new. <laughs> the CDC has always had issues with messaging, but they certainly, it's complicated, right? We all know that things, our, our whole interpretation changes, sometimes because we learn new things and sometimes because the virus itself is changing. And so the reality changes, but we need to learn how to message that stuff in more coherent ways because we were stepping all over our own toes on this and that just confused everybody. To and a so, degree that hasn't changed. I mean, it's, it's still a problem, but it's still, I read the CDC guidelines and I get confused. Exactly. Like I'm getting confused. Yes. Who else is? Right. Right. Well, Josh, you did a good job. Really? You did those Wednesday press conferences. The journalists were like, oh, Dr. LeBear is talking on Wednesday. Let's all join in. And you did a good job translating that. So yes, it was a general gap, but some talented people stepped forward like you were regularly available week after week after week. Well, thank you. Thank you. And you've made it accessible. Why do you think the journalists kept coming to your press conferences? You said stuff that makes sense to their readers and listeners and viewers. And it's not a widespread talent among scientists. Give yourself some credit. You did a good job translating. Oh, well, thank you. But I, I do think still it's an area where we all need to learn how to do better. I mean, especially places like the CDC, which is what everybody wanted to turn to. Yeah. But locally, I think if you ask our journalists in Arizona, I think they will tell you that they were able to find credible, knowledgeable 
people. Mm. There's a list of them. You, Dr. Carol, Sam Durrani, Kara, me. We had a symphony of voices out there in our state. And so despite the shortcomings at the CDC and at the ADHS, I would say, you know, they found some good sources that that were giving good information at the state level, at the, yeah. you know, with our state uh, journalist core. Next question. What do you think will be the most enduring change that was created or accelerated by this pandemic? Zoom calls. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> we at ValleyWise were now allowed to meet in larger groups with masks on as long as you're not eating. But there's still a good amount of things that we, especially when you have just a meeting with a few people and you don't want to drive in, still do Zoom calls. <laughs> Telehealth. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's here gonna... to stay. Even our state Medicaid agency was not super enthusiastic about telehealth because of the fraud potential and this kind of stuff. And that is thrown out the window for good. I mean, telehealth is here to stay, stay, stay. Not just say, but I think that it's kind of the future. Yeah. I mean, we're realizing how many different things we can do with it for good and for bad. Every, I think, specialty kind of has its own view on it. But for good or for bad, I think that this is the beginning of a new branch. Mostly good. Mostly good, yes. Dr. LeBaire, any other thoughts on enduring changes that were precipitated so, by? The word endearing is what's catching me. So for example, I think mask wearing in public is going to be different forever. In Asia, it was not at all uncommon to see people wearing masks in public when they felt ill or when they were concerned or during the winter months or whatever. And in America, it was just not something you ever saw. What I think you're going to see it forever now. I think people here, I mean, while there's a whole contingent of people who just get violently angry about the concept of mask wearing, there is an, another population on the other end of that spectrum that feel very strongly that they're just never going to take theirs off again. So I think that's going to be a big, almost a permanent change here. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays. Some other social norms. I shook someone's hand the other day yeah. and afterwards I felt guilty. Like I, it was a, you know, it was after an overnight shift and it was someone whose name I recognized, but had never met. And so spontaneously shook his hand. And then afterwards I was like, oh, should I have done that? Should I have not done that? And then I stand outside with my hands. Right. I mean, then everyone kind of talks about the anxiety of going back to socialization and, and seeing people. I'm sure a lot of that will get better, but there probably are some changes there that might stick around for a really long time. All right, you've just stumbled upon a DeLorean, the time-traveling car from Back to the mm. Future. You travel back in time to Thanksgiving of 2019, and you meet your former self. What do you tell your former self on Thanksgiving of 2019 about the journey that lies ahead? And what does your former self tell you? Aside from, like, invest in Moderna or something? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Go out and stock uh, gloves and face masks. And toilet paper. And toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, you can never have enough. <laughs> and your former self responds to you saying, what? Right, what? Loony. <laughs> what are you talking about? People aren't going to do that. I, even when they were doing it, I couldn't convince myself that they were doing it. I was like, I, I refused. I refused until the day I had to get up at like 4 a.m., to go stand in a line at a fries. I was like, I'm not playing this game. It's not a real shortage. And then sure enough, I'm like at 4 a.m. I'm waiting in line to pick up a six pack just to get me through it. 
I didn't think it was real until I was in Costco and like you had to form a line and you only got one package. Oh yeah. We were standing in line at, at, at some random fries, not even my fries. I had to drive across town. Six packs of toilet paper. And they made us walk in a line and I was like eighth in line. So I couldn't get the 12 pack. I had to get this six pack. (laughs) God. Vivid memory. (laughs) Well, crazy, totally crazy. Yeah. Will, what do you tell your former self? The only thing I can think of is is to tell my former self, don't go anywhere. Professionally, I mean. You know, I was the state health director for a long time. And and then I moved to academia for like three years after that. And then I decided to work at this nonprofit where I'm the one person operating. I mean, I have a board and stuff, but it's just me. I feel like I was in a, in a perfect spot during this pandemic because had I still worked in academia, I would have had a zipper on my mouth, you know, because when you work in an institution like that, there's some guardrails. Yeah. And I, I happened to be at this nonprofit where there weren't any guardrails, just evidence was my guardrails. That was my guardrail. And so there aren't other institutions no, they're akin to the public health association. No, because even because financial, like we don't take any state money. They're not a member of our organization. So I didn't even have to worry about what they thought about. Hmm. They couldn't retaliate. So we're not like hospitals who can have their Medicaid rate decreased by an unhappy governor. So there were all these institutions that were, had guardrails about what they could do and say because of risk for retaliation because of the infrastructure, the, you know, the approval process before you can talk to journalists and stuff like that. I just felt like I was in the right place at the right time in the right organization with the right relationships. I knew all the journalists from my old job. Mm. So don't go anywhere. Stay right here. Mm. Mm. It's almost showtime. I would have said, live it up. You have four more months or three more months uh, before you're not going to leave your house for a really, really long time. So I would have, man, told myself to go out of town and have lots of fun. But also that this too shall pass and that things will be okay in the end because that that was rough. But this too shall pass and and it is not the end. I, I will say that when it first hit, I was dubious. And I think now I would have paid more attention. I think a lot of us were getting mixed stories, right? We were, we thought, we heard it was not as bad as, it was like one-tenth as bad as the flu, you know, that kind of thing. And I would have probably paid a little more attention. Although in the end, it was what it was. And I'm not sure it would have changed anything to know that. We had these podcasts where, you know, even Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob England, previous director for Maricopa County Public Health Department had come on. And I remember like myself, Will, Dr. Bob, everyone on this podcast saying, you know, this thing probably isn't going to be that bad. I think that, you know, we're being a little bit alarmist about it. Right. You I know, we all thought that that was the best assessment based off of the evidence that we had at the time. I remember right. looking for some of those old decades, old research publications to figure out like, what is the efficacy of entire populations wearing a mask for some sort of communicable disease? And it, the evidence just really wasn't there. So my conclusion was, well, we don't have any evidence to support that everybody should be masking up right now. That's well, right. That now was we the, have yeah. that evidence. And, and there weren't any masks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. From, yeah. <laughs> from the other thing. When you look back in the last two years, where were the opportunities where Arizona may have gone one way, but we really should have taken 
a different route? Where are those forks in the road where you look back and you say, man, if we would have gone a different direction there, if a different decision had been made, the outcomes would have been far different. Whether that's good or bad, I think we're probably naturally inclined to talk oh, about where oh, we went wrong I would and say, it could have gone right. I think without a doubt, kind of early June 2020, Yep, that, that was the moment right there. That's where we, we really lost our game. And that was when, because of decisions to pull out too quickly from lockdown or at least to stay at home or whatnot, if we had not come out so soon, we, we would not have become the highest hotspot in the planet. Arizona at that time led the world in cases because we, un, we came out too soon. We, we didn't realize that the wave was coming across the country and it was about to hit us. I think it's not just too soon, but in the wrong way. Like we came out in on May 15th, it was a free for all. And that the governor's executive order when we came out of that stay at home order was, please, if you run a bar, restaurant or nightclub, do the right thing. Follow CDC guidance. But we're not going to enforce anything. And so they everyone uncorked the champagne and it was like Mardi Gras for the next month. And you saw the yeah, news yeah. stories downtown. And, and it went exponential. And it and that's what led us to be the worst place in the whole world in July and why it was necessary to the governor did do this, which is to shut the bars, restaurants and nightclubs. Well, restaurants went to takeout because it was getting so dangerous. Truly, that's one critical control point. A second one was not doing any enforcement. Remember, the bars, restaurants and nightclubs went on pause and to open back up in August, they had to sign an attestation that they would follow the CDC mitigation expectations. And because we never did any enforcement in November, December, and January, the attestations that they all signed were not enforced. And so it became Mardi Gras again. Oh, yeah. It was and a free-for-all in December and January and February. And that led to just the incredible loss of life that winter. And we also led the world a second time, led the world, Arizona did. And then the third thing yeah. I would say is not using policy to improve vaccination rates, not providing the carrots that we should have provided to get people vaccinated. So like in other states, to go to a bar, restaurant or nightclub or a museum or whatever, you had to show your vaccination card. Once the vaccine was widely available, we should have said this is a requirement to do any of these fun things, which would have improved vaccination rates. I don't know how much, but probably 15 to 20 percent. And then that would have helped the death in the Delta wave because we would have had much higher vaccination rates. So you're going to say, what are the three critical control points? One, coming out of the stay at home order without any kind of enforcement of any mitigation whatsoever in May of 2020. Second thing is not doing any enforcement of the attestations that the bars, restaurants and nightclubs made in December and January of 2020 and 2021. That led to a lot of deaths and also, again, crisis standards of care and being the worst in the world again, and then not using the fear of missing out to get people an incentive to get vaccinated so they could go do fun things. One, two, three, those are mine. As we move forward in an endemic state, which by the way, does not mean that it is ended. It's there for this forever. Right. Yeah. How should we be thinking about COVID-19, how should we look at, view, interpret the numbers and, and where our level of risk lies? And I, and I ask that because the latest C2C guidance very broadly looks at case numbers and it focuses yeah. more so I, on hospitalizations. 
Yeah. So I, I would say focus more on hospitalizations. That's where we for here, here to forward. It's not about, are you infected? It's how many people are getting ill, seriously ill from it. If this thing becomes a big cold that keeps coming year round, it becomes like the other seasonal coronaviruses. We can live with that. It's if this thing starts to increase hospital numbers, death numbers, ICU numbers, that's when we have to pay attention. So our focus should be on how much of this virus is causing that. That's what I would focus on. I agree. And that's what the new CDC guidance does. Yeah. I think the new CDC guidance is really good. And so it's not just cases anymore. It's what's happening in the hospitals. What's, what's the percentage of the people in the hospital with COVID so that you can manage the other conditions that people have, other procedures they need. Which is, which is really a real good. shift in mindset, right? Because I mean, like throughout this whole pandemic, we've been focused on the cases per 100,000, the seven day mm -hmm. trailing average, the percent positivity rate. And you know what? It made sense. But Dr. LeBaire just said earlier, the conditions on the ground changed. You know, Omicron wasn't Delta. <clears throat> Delta wasn't Alpha in terms of its clinical presentation. And so when the virus changes, the way you think about the virus should also change. And Omicron was really, really different from Delta. And the policy yes. should change because of that. Yeah. Right. You know, and eventually it's going to be like influenza. Thousands right. of people die from influenza every year. And so there's vaccines and if you're sick, you stay home and it's probably eventually going to be like that. Last call. Anything that you want to make sure our audience remembers, anything that you want to just get off your chest, anything that you think we haven't touched on that we should before we call this anthology, bring it to an end. I say Thank you, Vitalist Health Foundation. No, it's the truth because you guys organize these podcasts and we, you know, we were the guests that came on board and Rob right. over here has been doing all the technical work. That's what I say is if you guys hadn't stepped up and did all the production and get the distribution out there, none of this would have happened. So my hat's off to Vitalist. Yes. Thank you. And, and, yes. and Will, thank you for, you know, being a voice for all of us. Your independence was really critical to everybody. I completely agree. This has changed healthcare forever. We're still trying to figure out how it's changed healthcare, but nothing in healthcare is ever going to be the same. Some ways that's great, like telehealth. In other ways, that's probably not so great. We're still trying to sort that out. It turned over a rock of things that were happening in healthcare before COVID in terms of managing nurses and keeping nurses and the numbers we need in hospitals. It kind of showed us all the bugs that were down there. And we yes. need to really address those problems more globally. Yes. It's not and, just COVID. And it's very frustrating because in the system, you hope that people are addressing it, but a lot of addressing this takes money. <clears throat> and we all know how everyone feels about spending money, including healthcare systems. So for instance, we have all these traveling nurses that everyone is paying for. And right. the question is what's going to happen and when is it going to happen? And the, the sense is, all the healthcare systems, at least in the Valley, at the same time have to turn off traveling nurses. And then we're back to where we were a few months ago, where we have a big nursing shortage, because yep. I know before I, I said a lot of healthcare workers have left the force and they're expecting more to leave yep. um, and they're not being replenished. So that's not something that's going to go away. These are big, big problems. Man, I hope someone's addressing. Yeah, and I would be remiss if I didn't point out too that turning over of the rock also revealed a lot of the systemic and historical inequities that exist in this country yes. that, that many people have turned a blind eye to for a long time. So yeah. yet again, yet again. All right, crew, it has been a pleasure to be the host of this podcast, to be able to talk with the three of you on a biweekly basis. 
Shout out to John Ford for being the one who started this thing up with Will Humble. It was going to be a one-time deal. <laughs> and at the end of the episode, this was in March of 2020, we're like, you know what? Let's have this be a series that we do. And it'll also double as a diary and a chronicle. And that's what this has really become. And we've got 40 episodes that someday someone in the future may be interested in the historical experiences of Arizona. And it's on the Vitalist Health Foundation website. Yeah, at the very least, it's something for our, that we force our kids and grandkids to listen to many years from now. <laughs> right. right. I'd be, I run into people all the time that say, oh, I listen to those podcasts. It's the one place where I know I'm getting honest to goodness, unfiltered, unspun stuff. You know? That's really neat. Everyone, it has been a pleasure. Thank you yes, so much for likewise. everything that you have done over Thank the past you. two years and that you continue to do. We are not out of this thing by any means, but we are moving into a brighter place. So yes, thank I you all. So. We started these COVID-19 roundtables roughly two years ago, convening local experts to provide updates on and make sense of this once in a century pandemic. Is it bittersweet to see it come to an end? Of course, but only slightly bitter to no longer share this time with our panelists. And oh, so sweet to say that the spread of COVID-19 and its disruption to daily life is rapidly slowing. That being said, the pain caused by this pandemic and the needlessly high amount of life lost in Arizona will be felt for generations. We have all learned a great deal about ourselves, our systems, and our society over the last two years. And perhaps most importantly, as Dr. Guerin pointed out, health is a community activity. Our individual health depends on the health of the community around us. Our community's health depends on the health of the neighboring communities, and so on and so on. There's really no way to conclude the COVID-19 roundtable discussions because there really is no conclusion of COVID-19. We can, however, take a few moments to be ever more grateful for the time that we do get to spend together, in person, face to face, and if the moment feels right, rediscovering the joy of a simple handshake or an embrace with those who have spent the last two years confined to a small square on our computers. Thank you to the team at Gordon C. James Public Relations and producer Rob Trigg at Star Worldwide Networks for editing and sound design. If you enjoyed this episode, you can access all of our podcasts at vitalisthealth.org podcast or by searching for Vitalist Spark on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.